This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms podcast, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Sinell. Hi, Mark. Hi, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. So today we get to welcome Mike Maciag, who is Chief Marketing Officer of Dynatrace. So one of our own, one of the clan is here with us today. (laughs) And as CMO, Mike is responsible for Dynatrace's global marketing organization. And we're really excited to hear his expert opinion on observability and the vital role that it plays in IT and especially the cloud. Welcome to Tech Transforms, Mike. Thank you, Carolyn. Mark, nice and nice to be with you both today. And uh, I know this is a long time in coming, but I'm excited to be sitting down and talking to you today. Well, we're really for coming on. Yeah. yeah, we're excited. We've we've been able to talk to a few of our guests a little bit about APM, and um, just recently we talked to a former was Bill uh, CIO C, CIO at VA. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And and he is very bullish on APM. And he talked a lot about um, the advances that they were able to make in the VA with APM. Mm -hmm. And just that, at least within the VA, APM moved from a nice to have to a must have. And what I'd really like to hear you talk about, just to dive right in, Mike, is So there's the APM part, but then in my mind, and I might be positioning this wrong. So in my mind, I think that observability is like APM 2.0. But can you speak to that APM versus observability? um, What's the difference? Certainly. And you you might want to mix, as long as we're talking about terms, we might want to mix monitoring in there as well all terms that are thrown around, right? Is it monitoring? Is it APM? Is it observability? And it's changed and it's changed a lot. Um, Let me start with the simplest definition then maybe we can unpack it from there. Think of observability as the umbrella term, as the broadest umbrella term that goes above all of this. Observability fully includes APM and observability also subsumes monitoring, you know, both, both of the things that we've been doing. And there are there are kind of two mega trends in the industry that have been driving this move towards observability. One is the move to the cloud. You know, more and more systems are moving to cloud architectures, probably more important digitally native architectures. So we're going from monolithic systems that we could understand, that we could see, that we could touch, we could understand what's happening with them into into cloud uh, increasingly complex, even multi-cloud architectures that are driven by driven by microservices and the like. And, and, and the reason for the reason for that movement is it has made digital transformation, application development faster and easier in, in that regard, right? Which is the this digital transformation fundamentally looking at everything that I've been doing in every aspect of my business, whether it be on the front end or in my or in the services I provide, whether it be on the front end or in the back end machine to machine conversations, 
is happening in cloud architectures, and we're trying to figure out how we can automate more of it, and, and things are happening that way. So does that make sense just from a starting point from a, you know, observability is the umbrella, fully subsumed monitoring, fully subsumed APM kind of in that, the drivers being cloud and digital transformation, making that happen. And I can get into more detail. I just wanted to- you know, uh, that, that absolutely hits the mark. And, and, and we also say in user uh, performance or um, experience. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. A, yeah. So that, yeah, that sets me straight because me saying that observability is APM 2.0 is wrong. APM is, like you said, it's underneath observability. It might be one, I guess, one way into implementing an observability platform into your organization, yeah. but it's not all of it. Yeah, when you say when you say observability, kind of what pops into my mind is thinking through, you know, there's APM, there is infrastructure monitoring as part of that, you know, what's going on in the infrastructure that's underneath it. There is Mark was kind of alluding to digital experience management. You know, where does the end user fit into this? You know, and, and kind of and kind of making and making that happen. Um, and then and then you have you know increasingly even elements of you know systems that are that are achieving what they need to achieve have security in there as well, because you know really we think about a world where software works perfectly. The expectation is that we live in a world where software works perfectly. Now that's a vision, right? It's, 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 it's a long way coming, but to, to make that happen, you know, on an end to end basis, you really need to bring all of those things in there. APM, I often think about as the high ground in this because APM is where the user touches the applications. You know, it's where, it's where, the business needs meet the IT needs of what's happening. It's kind of what people can touch in that in that area. So it's a very interesting place to enter, um, and and that and that obviously you know is 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 an important part part of it. But but it's absolutely essential to have the you know the infrastructure that's monitored underneath it and the and the and the user experience at least you know specifically as you may kind of make that. So, so there are a couple of there, there. You mentioned a couple of different things, and in the federal uh, market. Uh, there's two things, and, and if we have time, maybe we can talk about these. Um, but it, one is the uh, the executive order that the president came out with at the end of the calendar year around end user experience. Mm -hmm. It was something very new um, that we had seen uh, coming out of the government. So maybe we you know we can we talk about that maybe uh, a little bit later if we have time. But the second one, and you mentioned security was uh, zero trust. Yep. The, the whole cybersecurity, and of course, everybody's trying to figure out ways that they can improve, you know, their security posture. And, you know, uh, people like uh, Carolyn and, and I figured out how we can tap into the cybersecurity budgets that have been allocated to the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so, okay, for our listeners, I want to back up just a little bit and, and uh, define APM. It's Application Performance monitoring. And that is, you made, you made me realize that we didn't de define that Mike, because when you said there's the infrastructure monitoring too, you're right. In my mind, like application performance monitoring includes infrastructure monitoring, but not necessarily, right. That would be the observability. Yeah. You, I, Carolyn, just to, to not get too inside baseball on Dynatrace, I understand why you think about it that way, because our APM does in fact include, we think of APM as full stack. Yeah. It goes all the way down to the infrastructure that it's monitoring. So when people work with Dynatrace, 
they're getting that as part of included. So absolutely makes sense why why you kind of, given your steeping at Dynatrace, kind of thinks of it that way. The rest of the world does not, by the way. They think mm-hmm. of APM and, and infrastructure as two different things. You know, mm-hmm. so you, you basically buy those off a card list. We don't we don't think they can be separated, you know, because no. you, what you what you want to be able to do. I mean, the goal here is to simplify cloud complexity to the point where where you can get a precise root cause answer if something were to go wrong and drill all the way down to here's a specific line of code that's making that happen, or here's the piece of infrastructure that's making that happen. Let's say it's in a Kubernetes environment. This is a good container that's spun up and spun down in a second, but it does that, you know, 60 times in, you know, 60 times an hour. You know, you, you need to be able to find that as it comes and goes. And that's why you need to have full stack, you know, as, as you kind of think about that. So, so you, you said some interesting things there, Mike, and I want to dig into this a little bit deeper because in the federal space, we feel like we're three to five years behind the commercial market. Yeah. And the use of these concepts of observ- observability, even, even APM, we rarely see RFPs coming out that have APM listed in there. We might see infrastructure monitoring. We might see other other terminology like that, but we rarely see these concepts. Um, and the government has been in this uh, transformation for years, moving to the cloud. Uh, some agencies have had more success than others. Um, but can you help us? Can we talk a little bit about how we might be able to better position the concepts and terminology of observability and federal better? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I honestly think it's probably, you know, you mentioned three to five years behind, debatable exactly how many years, right? But the curve curve that the commercial space has gone through increasingly seems to be exactly the curve that the the federal space is on, right? Which is with the moves toward, you know, with the moves towards moving to the cloud with, you know, whether they be, whether they be, you know, trusted clouds or public clouds, the same kind of breakup of monolithic architectures has taken place. And when you break up the monolithic architectures, speed and scalability come with that and flexibility come with that. And the other truth that you're going to run that I think you'll run into is complexity also comes with that. Mm. And, and guess what? No one, and I'm guessing the federal government's the same, isn't is getting additional resources to monitor this in the old way. You know, the idea that a system should be able to be, mon- you know, where you can understand whether the system's up or down and then you can go figure it out from, you know, figure it out from there monitoring health. When you move into observability, what you're doing is you're asking the systems themselves to share, to become observable, to put out data that says, hey, here's what's going on with me, right? And, and so that it can begin to understand in that way. And that's, that's the purpose of, you know, trying to simplify that complexity so that when you don't have greater resources to get your jobs done, you can still stay on top of it because we don't want, you know, what the last thing that people want to do is get bogged down in monitoring and not be able to innovate and be able to drive those new apps that are driving better services for citizens that are driving more security, you know, in, 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 in DOD oriented areas, you know, et cetera. And that's, that's where this idea of observability and I'll even go one step further than that. Observability today does not include, the concepts of intelligence and an automation, but we think it should, you know, and, and, and that's because this overwhelming amount of data that's being generated by these systems is really beyond the capability to do the old ways where I'm going to put some data up on dashboards 
and I can look at the dashboards and figure out what's going on. I have a good sense of what's going on. It's just not possible to stay on top of it that way. You know, yeah. so we, 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 we think about it as, as moving to a world where we're providing answers and the answers are allowing people to, to automate more and get more out of their teams. Well, that's a good answer. Yeah. Um, we'll get that out to the sales team right away. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, uh, so one of the things that you, that you mentioned that we run into um, is security. Yep. And so some of, some of the customers that we have have a, a very different or stringent, higher stringent security requirements than others, obviously, as you can imagine. And so that is, we run into, that, that's maybe a level of complexity we run into. Yep. It's certainly an issue. Um, we see that come out a lot. So is there a, is that the same kind of answer that we would provide um, about security? Yeah. You know, one of the things that we're seeing more and more of kind of in the security sphere is how do you think about security in real time and finding uh, precisely identifying security issues in production? You know, we have all kinds of things in the world that try and keep the bad guys out or, you know, the bad actors or the bad code out. We have even more things in the world that tests, you know, and says, okay, before I do a check-in, you know, kind of do a static code analysis on this and understand whether it's got known vulnerabilities in it. What the world has been lacking has been the idea of, okay, so now there's something out there. How do I know who has it or what systems have it? And how do I precisely identify it and make it happen? log for shell helped us see this kind of in, in, in very specific ways. Later, not, not as large of an issue, but node for shell showed the same thing, which is all of a sudden there was a zero, you know, there was a zero day exploit that was out there in, 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 or it was a zero day exploit, exploit that was discovered in a very popular open source package, you know, that could be manipulated and the entire world needed to find, find it and fix it overnight. And, and by, providing observability on the whole stack and understanding where it's where it existed you know our customers at Dynatrace were able to find that instantaneously the minute it was identified as a vulnerability we could show specifically what was going on and at least helped people with the how am i going to get to the point where i know exactly what happened and i can close that door as fast as i possibly can now as we move on it gets to okay great now let's move it into i'm going to take automatic you know i'm going to take automatic action and do a remediation on that and there's, and there's more and more of that going on. But security is playing an increasingly large role in this. And people are expected to, DevOps teams are expected to build, should really be talking about DevSecOps teams, to correct myself, you know, are increasingly expected to build security into the applications and in the, in the, in the infrastructure and the setting up and ensure it through things like, you know, through, through things like right. what we're doing. And do you... How do you see observability fitting into DevSecOps? It's you know it's a, it's a, it's an absolutely essential piece of it, um, and and here's and here's why. Um, the the required DevSecOps, just in the broadest, most simple terms, is the idea that you know responsibility for you know for all of this shifts left. When I say shift left, it used to be we'd write monolithic code, we throw it over the wall, the people would operate the code on the on the other side of it, right? And yeah. and there'd be this finger pointing game of you know it didn't work well, what I gave you worked, your system must be messed up, you know, etc. 
The DevSecOps at the broadest sense is let's shift that responsibility left and give, you know, give development the responsibility to uh, build operability into, reliability, resiliency into the product, as well as building the security into the product, you know, from, from the beginning. To make that happen, you need to provide the instrumentation so that they know what's happening in production or what would happen in production when I put it in production. And then if I can provide precise root cause and get it to the next level of like, not only did this go wrong or could it go wrong or there was a slowdown, but here's specifically why I can go fix it faster. You know, so, so I want to be able to, you know, make, make this happen. And, and really the purpose behind all of this is the world, you know, wants and expects flawless and secure interactions, whether that's a machine to a person or that's a machine to a machine, you expect it to be flawless. And, and, that's, and that's a fair expectation. And as we go more and more digital with the world, and that's kind of the whole idea of digital transformation, you know, it, it, the, the, that's, that's why we expect this flawless result. You know, in the commercial sector, it may be in many ways more forgiving than elements of the federal sector where you guys are talking in your audience sense, right? The, the idea of having something go wrong or making a wrong you know, making a wrong assumption in software that the interaction doesn't go right can be immense. You know, it, it, it hits not thou- not hundreds, not thousands of users, but, you know, tens of thousands to millions to hundreds of millions of citizens, as you think. Well, it could be life. It could be it could be life dependent. I mean, and the DOD and the IC space where that's right, mission, yeah. where mission criticality means the life or death, uh, you know, couldn't get any more grave than that. Yes. So. That's that's absolutely right. So a big part of this then is all of this data that these modern systems are, are putting out. It's like, okay, how do you take that data and you turn it into answers so that you know specifically what's happening? And then and once I have, if I can get my answers precise enough, how do I then automate based on that so that I can get to a, you know, I can get to a point of 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 being able to automate, you know, as, as things go on, you know, Mark, to, to kind of go on your life and death scenarios. Like sometimes I talk about this from a, you know, from a self-driving cars perspective, which is the, you know, it's, it's a, a car needs to observe everything that's going on in its environment in real time to kind of make it happen. Right. So, you know, do I have, do I, you know, what's the, what's it like outside, you know, what's, what's the speed limit, you know, where am I on the road? Are there, are there, you know, are there other issues to deal with, but then it needs to make decisions and it needs to make decisions with precise, you know, to, in order to automate, you need to be able to make precision decisions with, with precise, um, you know, accuracy. You can't approach a crosswalk in a self-driving car if that day ever comes and be unsure whether it's a shadow or a pedestrian. You just can't, right? You need to get down to that. It's no different in IT and it's no different in the observability space, which is, you know, if you're going to automate remediation and allow people to innovate, you know, that's going to have to happen with with very precise, you know, root cause and a causative AI that's kind of underneath it, those types of things. Well, that was a great, that's a great example of, of that kind of putting it in context everybody can understand and so, so Carolyn, if it's okay with you, I know that Mike Mike started tapping into um, this this whole DevSecOps um, concept, and and I wanted to ask a question about that. Maybe you could peel the onion back a little bit further, Mike. And yep. so, in a, in a recent article um, by Dark Reading, you stated that today's rapid pace of innovation, coupled with the complexity of modern software development has elevated the need for automated orchestration. Yes. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about this and how do you see this changing for us? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think remember the entire context of the article, but it certainly, certainly kind of understand the subject and, and kind of what we're talking about, you know, that way. Yeah. The it really becomes this complexity curve is not going to stop. Right. As we go from monolithic architectures to cloud architectures, as we go from, you know, uh, to containers and microservices, as we go to multi-cloud, as we go to huge scale, these systems are all and we go to change that that just does not stop. It's kind of a constant change. These systems are all generating immense amounts of data, you know, both in the, both in the variety that they're generating, the volume that they're generating, you know, in the speed at which they're doing it, it, it can take a team if things don't change. What basically what it says is things have to change in the way that you, in the way that you manage your systems. You know, it's, it's, it, we started at the top of this as monitoring versus observability. That's a good example of like, we just need to think kind of change our mindsets as we're going to go through, go through that. You have to change the way that the teams work as well, you know, and, and that is getting the teams from reactive, hey, I've got a problem, how do I go fix it, to proactive, looking at observability data and understanding what, anticipating what problems are going to come up and how do I address them before they impact end users. Otherwise, people would just be completely buried and, and there'll be firefighting at all the time, which will, which will just completely stifle innovation. So this is a long answer to getting to the only way that we think about this, that they can get around it, is delivering answers from all of that data, getting specific to that, and then do, delivering that in a very precise way, you know, to, to be able to automate that. And, you know, whether this is Dynatrace or your listeners are kind of dealing with this in some other area, I mean, I would encourage people to be looking at how do I get the most intelligent system put together and how do I automate absolutely everything I possibly can. We obviously have a point of view on that. Um, I don't think that's the point of today. But but that's the you know that's that's um, you know that's our that's that's kind of how how we look at it in that regard, and then kind of looking at the future, I, I don't see this slowing down. You know, when I said that you know to begin with, if anything, it's accelerating. And Mark, as you kind of pointed out earlier, you know, if if indeed the federal government you know is is you know a year to five years slower in adoption, we kind of know what the roadmap looks like. And we've seen great acceleration in the commercial sector in this area, and and this idea of of you know driving you know intelligent automation through you know through you know precise answers is is even more important to kind of make that happen yeah. and get people in their front foot. And I I, I haven't I I've yet to see kind of you know federal budgets become hey this is way more than we need right everybody is resource constrained you know every every agency I think that you talk to every department that you talk to say yep I'm resource constrained. You know, and that's and that's how you know bringing in systems can help in that resource and getting people the stuff that the people are great at, which is innovating, is is really a big part of the mission. Your explanation of how observability fits into DevSecOps brings me back to your point, Mark, about the president's um, memo on user experience and that the government has got to deliver a better user experience. And the reason it, you know, I'm tying these together is because Mike, when you talked about DevSecOps and identifying the problem, even before it happens, I mean, that is user experience, right? Like we don't ever want them to feel the pain. 
that's, that's right. how we deliver excellent user experience. And okay. so we we can't meet the president's mandate. Um, and it's, it's more of a memo than a mandate still, but we cannot meet his objectives without the observability in the DevSecOps. That's right. Yep. And it kind of, that comes down to, you know, the user experience. I sometimes broaden user experience to think about it in terms of not just user experience, but digital interactions. And it sounds like I'm parsing words, you know, which is, which is a dangerous, that's a dangerous label to put on a marketing guy, but, but there, or, or a day, or I, I should say occupational hazard, you know, to <laughs> keep from parsing words, but let me explain for a second. User experience typically means, okay, how does this experience work user to machine? Super important, right? That, you know, because we all have had experience in your, your favorite mobile app, you know, oh, I had to wait a second and a half, I'll go do it somewhere else, right? I'm, I'm on, I'm, I'm kind of trying to do it a different way. You know, if you're thinking about, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, Social Security Administration, for instance, and, you know, and supporting citizens, hey, I just launched an app, it takes me three and a half seconds to get a response, I'll pick up the phone and call somebody. And, and all of a sudden, you know, that, that's broken and, and my efficiencies are now gone and my, and my, my phone, lines, phone lines are flood, flooded. Equally as important, though, is making sure that the machine-to-machine interactions are happening as well. So if I think about it from the perspective of I may have filed for Social Security, I'm not quite there yet, but I may have filed for Social Security, that kind of that kind of goes through that kind of goes through a process. Now it needs to go do a check against you know a, a record you know of, of my age. What have I paid in the Social Security? You know what taxes have I paid, etc. All of those things are machine to machine interactions. And if they don't work, the whole system breaks as well. Which is why I think thinking about this as as flawless interactions rather than simply flawless user experiences is is an in, in, interesting way to kind of that people should challenge themselves to think about all the interactions. A very applicable um, example is, you know, how the government communicates uh, COVID testing centers, um, results, all that kind of stuff, um, which require real time answers. And Um, it makes me think of another kind of user. So we, we talk about machine to user. So when you go to file Social Security, um, Mike, in 20 years, 50 years. Um, so that's you, the end user, the citizen, but then you've got me, the social security employee trying to deal with the machine. So the administrator, the, um, the implementer from the business side, there's, there's that interaction too. Um, and that opens a whole can of worms with zero trust that I don't think we want to dive into today. But um, <laughs> there's, to your point, there's more than one user. It's not yeah, just that citizen. That's right. Yep. So I want to do a quick throwback to an article that you did way back in 2020. Oh, boy. All right. So, Another era. Exactly right. Like the pandemic has just put us in a twilight zone. So. Back in 2020, you did an article with Executive Edge, and I was reading through some of the statistics. Um, One that jumped out at me was that 50% of application portfolios will be on the cloud in the next five years. So that was Mm -hmm. two years ago. Do you know where we are in that journey? Are Are we on track with that? Oh, boy. I would, you know, so... I don't have specific answers to this, you know, in terms of what the new, what the 50% is. I am, I would be willing to bet my first social security check 
<laughs> in however many years that is, that that it, it's exceeded that number of 50%, you know, because oh, basically all the, everything, the digital transformation stuff has only accelerated, you know, since 2020 and has only yeah. accelerated since the pandemic. Yeah, I'm well, not seeing any of that transformation happening in anything but cloud native architectures, right? So uh, it's happening. It's happening in the cloud as, as, as you kind of make it happen that way too. So all the new apps are being built in the cloud and, and there are more new apps being written on an annual basis than like the last 10 years combined you kind of start looking at those. Well, things. that's another stat that was actually a little shocking to me, Mark. So IDC projected that over the next three years, so we're two years into that three years, right? that there will be as many new applications built and deployed as have been built and deployed over the past 40 years. Yeah. So speaking to the complexity, the volumes that you were talking about earlier, Mike, and why we have to have the observability. And then I want to go back to, you said something about other people don't think of the observability, including intelligence. And I think you... Are you re referencing artificial intelligence? Yes. And automation. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So breaking my head again a little bit because like those, both of those things seem like necessary components of observability as to the way you've explained it and described it. Right. Right. Yeah. That could be, that could be my biases. So that, that is, that is correct. I think that we think of them as, absolutely essential elements of observability. And let me double click a little bit on this as well, because artificial intelligence is a, is a term that everybody uses, right? One way or the other. And oftentimes when people talk about AI, they're thinking, they're talking about machine learning, which is, let me get a bunch of data. I'm going to climb through that data and look for, you know, mathematical correlations and statistical, you know, statistical correlations and the like, and then draw inferences as to what's going on, right? So, you know, so if, for instance, you know, if I look outside and everybody walking by my window is wearing shorts and t-shirts today, I could, you know, statistically infer that it must be warm out. I can't tell you precisely what the temperature is or kind of what's going on, but I could statistically infer that. That's great and certainly a terrific first start, but it doesn't get you to then precise to then to the precise root cause of what's going on. You know, so, you know, the, the, what, what we think is required in this world is, and the other thing that has to happen is you need lots and lots of data to be able to observe what's going on and be able to make an inference that may or may, may or may not be right, you know, in the end, you know, so we've all seen the websites of spurious correlations, you know, there's interesting correlations of, when Nicolas Cage, you know, stars in a movie, more people drown in swimming pools. It's like it's correlated, but it's not causative. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. so, so you need if we're especially with the amount of data that we're dealing with, you can get all kinds of interesting spurious correlations. What you need and, and what you know, the way we think about it is you need to be able to have all of that data in context about what it's doing and then be able to. And if it's all related from the top to the bottom, I now can start thinking about things like fault tree analysis and getting to causation-based, you know, AI, not correlation-based AI. So something went wrong in my particular app that's running slow. I can walk through a fault tree and kind of just oversimplify it, say, okay, great. Is it in my infrastructure? Check, 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 check. Nope. Is it in the database? Nope. Is it in, you know, in this particular area? Aha. 
I see what's happening. This particular machine is out of memory, and every and every time this machine gets hit, this is my particular problem. I now can go fix that. You know, because and the system should be able to tell you that, not simply, you know, here's a core, you know, here's a guess as to, as to what's going on. Because that's, that's when you can drive, that's when you can drive automation, you know, and kind of and make those things happen. So we we hear a lot of we hear a lot of confusion, or we see a lot of confusion in, in the market, particularly the federal market, because of that very thing. Yeah. See, um, you know, a lot of people talking about it and they're really not hitting on uh, part of the pun, the root cause of the problem. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's, that's right. And getting to that. And then that gets back to kind of the Tesla or the self-driving car example I was talking about. Only when you have that kind of precision as a precisely what's going on, can you then go trust automation to go drive something and, and, do, and basically do trusted automation where it's like, Okay, I now know specifically what's happened. I'm going to go move this to another system, or you know, I'm going to you know roll back this particular release to the previous release and let the DevOps team know kind of what's happened and, and, and let them go fix it, and re-release from that side. So you mentioned that a lot of people think about AI as machine learning. Correct. And to be able to do the automation, we need to move beyond machine learning or do we need machine learning and AI? Do they go together? Do they feed into so, each other? So, yeah. So AI, I think of AI again, as a superset and there's different ways to do it. You know, there's a machine learning aspect of it necessary, but not sufficient. What you need in there is you need to be able to understand your entire environment and map your entire environment and how, how they all relates to one another. So I can now do things like, fault tree analysis to get the specific cost. Okay. So, got it. Got it. You know, AI, AI may help you narrow it and tell you what trees to go look at. You know, there's there's lots of different things that we can kind of fit in that regard. Yeah. Good point. All right, Mark, before I take us to my favorite part, the tech talk, do you have any more questions for Mike about observability? Um no. I was thinking about the next I was thinking about uh, the uh, the the tech talk. I know. So we're going to the, the fun part of the, well, it's all been fun, but the, the, a little more lighthearted part of the conversation, which okay. is our TikTok question. So they're just kind of quick answers. Um, and I will ask you the first one and then, and Mark and I will just alternate. So Mike, what do you think the next big leap in technology will be? Or what do you want it to be? <laughs> you know, I think this is one that scares a lot of people, but I actually think, you know, it, we, we can have a lot of goodness in here, which is the, I, I, I'm really interested in kind of this whole automation world right now, which is we all have enough going on, you know, in, in our personal lives and our work lives, et cetera. Let's let the machines do the stuff that doesn't matter. Or, or, or I should say, let's let the machines do the stuff that machines are best built for, you know, to make our lives easier, to make our jobs more productive, you know, doing those types of things, you know, I'm, I'm playing around with some home automation stuff right now. And it's, it's, it's really early, you know, and it's, and it's very much nice to have, but it allows you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't, you know, which is, you know, you want to set a scene in your home, you know, that would require running around for five minutes and dimming lights and turning this on and turning that off, you know, as opposed to asking your digital assistant to do it for you, or, you know, I shouldn't have to come home to a dark home, right. Which is, 
I get home at night, it's 11 o'clock at night, I drop up to the house and it's dark. It's like, well, that doesn't sound, that's not nice, right? I'm going to trip over something in the garage and get a rake in the face. Well, Um, in every single one of those check boxes, they add to decision fatigue. Even though they're small, they're still adding, you know, to that decision fatigue, which is a a legit thing. So I want to know what, what are you playing around with, with automation at home? Can you Ah. tell us? Or is that um, a security breach? <laughs> yeah, no, there's no no security breach. My uh, there's two there's two elements of there's two elements of automation that I'm playing that I'm enjoying right now. One is is primarily the home automation through music and light switches and and, and the like that happens in that regard. Just real use case of get home at eleven o'clock at night, the right lights turn on. You know, five minutes later, it assumes that I'm no longer in the front, then the the right lights turn off, right? You know, yeah. set it setting scenes and kind of kind of making making those things happen you know tying them into the alarm system when you leave the house all the lights get turned off because i've heard my alarm it knows i'm not gonna be home why do i need the lights on you know reset the thermostat kind of make you know, kind of make make those things happen you know simple but you can kind of see where things are headed yeah. um you know in, in in terms of making that happen and i think everybody's having this experience as you get more you know newer more new cars out on the roads. There's the drive. There's the driver assistance technology. I'm not going to call it self-driving. We're not there yet, in my opinion. Uh, regardless of how some people might market it, uh, but you know the idea that um, the idea that you're driving along a highway at 65 miles an hour and your cruise control can recognize that geez, traffic above you is doing th- ahead of you doing 30. If you're distracted for a second, you know that could be a lot of bent metal or worse that happens as a result of that. Yeah. The systems are actually better at this. You know, yeah. don't get distracted. You know, not asking the car to drive yet, but it certainly can look and find out if there's a piece of metal in my way that's going slower than I am, better than I can actually. Yeah. You know, so that, have you taken the leap? Have you taken the leap on any of that uh, automated driving experience stuff? I, I've done a little bit. So, so I have a car that does uh, pretty good automated driveway uh, driving on the highways only. Yeah. Not changing lanes, you know, do it's basically cruise control that keeps you in the lane. And that works pretty well. It watches your eyes and it makes sure that, you know, you're paying attention to the road. Um, and, uh, Ooh, you know, wait, certain- you have a car that watches your eyes. Yeah. What? Watch if you, if your eye, you close, if I close my eyes, I'm in trouble, right? If I look away, <laughs> you're in trouble. What does it do? But, shock you? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it beeps and it, it, it screams at you to get your hands on the wheel. You know, it basically takes your ability to take your hands all on the wheel, off the wheel away from you. Uh, but, uh, but that's been, it's, that's, that's kind of fun. It's, it's early days on all of this stuff, but it's a great example of narrowing the use case to make it feasible, right? In this particular case, they narrowed the use case of there's 150,000 miles of well-mapped highways, you know, that it only works on and it won't change lanes and, you know, it doesn't do it in bad weather conditions, et cetera, but it works it, it, by narrowing that use case it can deliver as far as I can tell you know, pretty flawless, flawless experience. So you can't say automation. What is inspiring you these days as it relates to tech? And this could be podcasts or TVs or books or movies or, or anything like that. Um, Cause you already said automation. Yeah. So it's okay that it. you said it once. You just can't yeah, say just it twice. Can't say it again. <laughs> I can't say it again. Let's see here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, this is really tech. It's it's kind of strangely retro tech, right? Which is, I'm in the middle of a book called American Moonshot right now. American Moonshot. Like American Moonshot, and it's basically going through the history of, 
you know, basically the history of Kennedy's promise of we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and return him home safely. You know, different, you know, different gender pronouns, you know, in the 60s than there are today, for sure, um, as, as, as we go through that. But but that um, that book is kind of inspiring in terms of its clever use of tech. It's kind of merging people in tech because we didn't have, you know, I think I think your iPhone in your pocket was probably has as much compute power as the entire, you know, Apollo program had. You know, running on yeah. that's probably an exaggeration, but but you know maybe maybe not by much, and you know it's it's but it's basically that that combination of of tech and people, you know, and allowing people, you know, enabling new things to be done, and allowing people to kind of go solve creative problems as they can hand more over to the tech and kind of you know drive things. So that's pretty interesting kind of look at things, and it's kind of get me thinking about you know, well, you know what's possible now given that we have this just immense compute power, you know, and, and increasingly, you know, smarter software every day in terms of, in terms of what, you know, makes that happen. So I've been, I've been spending some time thinking about that. I don't have any great answers from it yet, but, but that's a, it's a pretty interesting story. I I'm fascinated by all that myself. And it's amazing to think what we accomplished with what was available at the time. It was like in the movie Apollo 13, they had a scene where Jim Lovell's mother said, if they can make a washing machine fly, my Jimmy can land it. That's, <laughs> that's right. Yep. It's absolutely right. All right. Do you have a favorite, not gadget, but like, do you have a favorite um, application or a guilty pleasure that you are willing to talk about on air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so for people that know me, it's hard to say a favorite gadget because I'm a gadget hound. I'm like, I'm constantly playing with gadgets, you know, one, you know, one way, you know, one way or the other. Um, so, so it, it, it is, um, it is, uh, it, that's a tough question to ask. So, so to answer. So let me, let me go to my, here's my current favorite gadget at the time. Uh, which again, I'm going to go retro because the thing's been around for five years, and you know the one I have is is a year old. But uh, I'm really enjoying the Kindles these days. The Kindle these days, oh. and and why? So you might ask why the Kindle? It's it it is the best single purpose device that I own. It does one thing: read a book, and it does that well. It's terrible. It's terrible at surfing the internet. It can't do magazines with it, etc. But if you're trying to have a book reading experience. You know, it's easy on the eyes. It's easy to carry. It kind of solves this problem exceedingly well. It's not this kind of Swiss Army knife. And by the way, it eliminates distractions. Exactly. If I read on, on another digital device, I'm always one button press away or one swipe away from checking stocks or doing my email or finding looking out up a I'm, word. Yeah, or exactly. seeing how much Matthew Broderick weighs now and how old he is. <laughs> what, whatever, whatever it happens to be. So there's there's some element of that of kind of the simplicity of that device that that you know that that uh, that is appealing to me today. Although I think the Kindle, you can look up words, can't you? Like if there's a word you don't know, can yes, you, you can. Up? Yeah, you're gonna hover yeah. your finger on it. It's got it does have a it does have a dictionary, which is yeah. which I think is nice. I I think that's okay, but yeah, yeah. if I'm reading online, I I will get. I can't get through an article online because yeah. I'll read somebody's name and I'm like, Ooh, I wonder what they look like now. And I'm yeah. down the Something rat hole. I go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Mark, you got the last question. 
Okay, so here you go. Think clear, clean slate here. Magic wand. Uh-oh. Magic wand. What is on? What is your technology wish list? What is the thing that you would love to see? Think just you know, broad brush could be anything. That is pretty interesting. Please say something from Star Trek. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going we're going way out there. I would love to see the digital assistants get way better than they are today. You know, all all of them. The conversational AI get to the point where, you know, why are we looking at these things? I get my fuzz on. Why are we looking at these things all day long? You know, that, that happens in that particular area. The digital assistant should be able to take us to the point where we're asking questions and our questions are getting taken care of. You know what? I need to, I need to schedule a meeting with Carolyn next Monday at noon. And it should, it should be smart enough to know. I'm talking about Carolyn Ford. She, I work with her. How are we going to make that happen? You know, kind of drive, you know, drive those types of things. We need a reservation for dinner at such and such. We've seen all the visions of this. It just hasn't completely fulfilled yet. And I think yeah. that's going to just be, uh, you know, that, that, that may be freeing and it may hopefully Carolyn, to your point, you know, get us to the point where we're moving beyond the distractions of I'm always a click away from something else when I'm trying to do one thing or the other, you know, yeah. and, and, and get us out, maybe get us out of kind of the, that, that loop a little bit. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's great. And I probably, and they probably did have that on Star Trek, by the way. Well, I think they might have. <laughs> I think it's called data. His name is data. And he's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, I'll give you actually. If I now that you say this, and I'm looking around my office, I will pay anything for a true house cleaning robot that cleans up the clutter. Oh, and kind of amen. Keeps that organized. That's the Jetsons, and doesn't get stuck constantly. Yeah. Now I'm not talking about jail. a vacuuming robot. You know, it's like stuff that can do laundry and empty the oh, dishwasher yeah. and put papers away. And it's like, oh like yeah. Anything. You you really want an AI assistant? Yeah, I'm on board. He with wants that. His, he wants his own C3PO. Exactly. No, he's way too annoying. But their <laughs> version. Okay, okay, we're we're digressing here. So thank you very much, Mike, for joining us today on Tech Transforms. It's been really fun talking to you. Um, and thanks to our listeners for joining us. Please uh, visit Dynatrace.com to learn more about how you can digitally transform faster, smarter, and easier. And if you enjoyed today's episode, share it and smash that like button. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.